to the Fremantle Press podcast. My name is Rebecca Hickey and today I'm talking to Holden Shepherd about his new book, Invisible Boys. Holden was born and bred in Geraldton, Western Australia. His debut novel, Invisible Boys, won the 2018 City of Fremantle Hungerford Award, the 2019 Kathleen Mitchell Award and the 2017 Ray Copy Residency Award and was highly commended in the 2018 ASA Emerging Writers Mentorship Prize. Holden's novella Poster Boy won the 2018 Novella Project Competition and was published in Griffith Review. His other writing has been published in Page 17, Indigo Journal, 10 Daily and The Huffington Post. He graduated with honours from Edith Cowan University's writing program and won a prestigious Australia Council Art Start Grant in 2017. Holden has always been a misfit, a gym junkie who has played Pokemon competitively, a sensitive geek who loves aggressive punk rock and a bogan who learned to speak French. He lives in Perth with his husband and he joins us here today. Holden, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Rebecca. It's awesome to be here. All right. Now, you won the Hungerford and for the last 12 months you've been doing this podcast. Now, as the winner of the Fogarty, I am taking over. Um, What have been some of the highlights of hosting this podcast and do you have any tips for me? So many. Um, No, look, this is a really cool gig um, Mm. and it's really cool to be able to do this kind of passing of the baton or the torch or whatever it is. It's it's a really cool idea. Um, So hosting the Fremantle Press podcast is really fun. Mm. Um, Firstly, you you get to practice like all the, you know, like kind of chatting to other authors and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, You get to meet your Fremantle Press stable mates. I found that really fun. Um, Personally, my tip would be um, I've always asked people like how – how they went about kind of starting their career as a writer or like what advice they would give to new writers, mm. purely selfishly, yeah. um, because it gives, <laughs> it gives me advice as well. Um, but also I think a lot of the people who tune into this podcast are, you know, people who are aspiring or emerging writers or, you know, established writers mm. even. Um, and so it's really cool to just lock into that discussion in this yeah. way. Um, and something I found really useful was um, reading the books just before um, I do the interviews or as close as I can to, you know, within the last week yeah. or so, um, it always helps keep, you know, my, my mind is still in that world, if that makes sense. Yeah, I have to I have to admit, I read your book in two days and became so sleep deprived doing it. Wow, that's so cool. <laughs> so I was just like, okay, I've got to, I've got to read this and oh, I'll just put it down for a minute and have a sleep. No, 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 I've got to keep reading. So I, I kind of, yeah. That's like the coolest feedback to get. Oh, good. Yeah, it really is, yeah. Um, well, Obviously, I read read it very quick, and it's still mm. fresh in my mind. But can you tell our listeners what is Invisible Boys about? Sure. So, Invisible Boys is a young adult contemporary novel. It's pure fiction, um, but it is a little bit generated from the the stuff I went through growing up, um, gay in the country. So, I'm from mm. Geraldton, as you mentioned in the intro. Um, and so, these three characters, teenage boys, you got Zeke, who's a bit of a nerd. You got Charlie, who's a punk. And you've got Hammer, who's the kind of jock. Um, And each of them is going through the process of realising that they're gay. Mm. Um, So the story follows these three boys um, and what happens when one of them is outed and everything starts to kind of unravel. Um, And in between those three um, narrative points of view, you also have these series of uh, anonymous letters or the letter bombs. The letter bombs, yep. Um, And we don't know which of the boys those letters are coming from, but it's basically someone saying, I'm at the point where I'm going to take my own life. Yeah. Um, so that, in a nutshell, is the novel. Is the novel. Um, I think when I was reading it, I kept um, 
writing down on post-it notes all about these things to do with masculinity. Mm. So I think masculinity is a is a key theme in your book and you delve into it in a lot of nuanced ways. One of the most powerful quotes for me, and I, I did underline this as well, <laughs> um, is this one here. No straight man will think of you as masculine and even if you know you belong at the men's table, they'll never let you sit there ever again because you're only masculine if other men think you are. In the book, what part do you think men play in shaping not only the boys' masculinity but how they relate to their sexuality? Oh, this is like the best question <laughs> oh, good. ever of all time. We could just do a whole podcast on this, to be honest. I could, yeah, I think I we could, could talk, yeah. We, we could talk to this for so long. Yeah. Um, I guess masculinity is a really core mm. concern and interest of mine. Like I, yeah. It always pops up in my writing, um, and especially where masculinity meets homosexuality. Yeah. I think the two are very interesting together. Um the the narration that kind of says, you know, you're only masculine if other men think you are. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's true now mm. as a 31-year-old man yeah. um, who's, you know, got a husband and he's living quite happily. Um, as a teenager, that feels true. Yeah. It, it, and gay or straight. Mm. I think um, you're defined by or you feel very much like you have to fit in with the wolf pack. And, and if you don't, then you're on the outer. So you've got to make sure you're masculine and you've got, you've got to make sure that other guys see you as part of the circle. And if you're out of the circle, that's not a good yeah, thing. It's not a good not, feeling. You're not right? a man, yeah. Everyone wants to be part of it. And every yeah, guy, you know, most well, most guys um, grow up wanting to be seen as a man. Mm. Um, and so any kind of chink in the armour can really hurt. Yeah. And I'm going to talk too long. I'm going to try to keep no, it short. No, please, go but, for um, it. But I, I think there's kind of a cultural conflation between masculinity and heterosexuality. So yeah. so when you do have a fault line like a, a gay man who presents as maybe traditionally masculine, um, then that's a really interesting area. I find that yeah. fascinating. Someone like Hammer, for example, um, I find a very interesting character because he's pretty masculine. Yeah, he's your, um, your, stand, he's your jock. Yeah. He's, he's your footy jock and, yeah. he's, and um, he's everything that goes with that. Um, but he's also gay mm. and he cannot get his head around the two of those things existing in one body. Mm. And... I find that fascinating and, yeah. and I did want to explore that. Yeah, and I think actually that kind of ties into how we, you talk about um, the kind of intersection between masculinity and homosexuality and how we respond to, you know, men who are gay and, and mm. how they relate to their masculinity. Um, I, I'm going to come to a question about how the boys, how we kind of respond to gayness. So the boys mm. we see grappling with their sexuality in various ways. Hammer, for instance, just cannot mm-hmm. get it through to his head that maybe he might be gay. Um, it's not that hard, mate. Yeah, <laughs> I know, but he's, he really struggles <laughs> he with does. it. He does, yeah, and, absolutely. Um, so we witness the boys grappling with different way, in different ways, um, but we also witness those around them responding in really interesting ways. Mm. I was struck by especially one of the kind of, Characters, she likes to think herself as woke. Uh-huh. You know, she supports gay rights and everything, mm. but she's really offended when she finds out that one of her friends is gay and he didn't come out to her. She's mm, just mm. deeply offended. Um, and then we see one of the reactions to the outed characters where the classmates are kind of, they don't hate him, but they're making fun of him. He's meme fodder. So mm. I'd, I'd love for you to, like, tell me a little bit about what you want our readers to learn about our reaction to gayness. Wow. Um, there is uh, probably so much to talk to here as well, but I think um, I think with things changing, mm. this is a really interesting thing to talk about because yeah. the way we respond to gayness is very different now Absolutely. to how it was 10 years ago, 20, 30, 40, et cetera. Mm. Um, so now it's very different and now, and I'm happy about that. Mm. I'm happy that in general, someone coming out as gay is much more favorably received 
in Australia in yeah. general. Um, <clears throat> not universally, of course. No. Um, so that's a good thing. Mm. But there are also, um, you know, just because you're not completely rejected and cut out by everyone you know doesn't mean that it's necessarily a favourable response or that the friendship continues no. the way it used to continue. Mm. Um, and that was one of the kind of subtleties I wanted to look at in, in this book is how, um, you know, maybe how the dads, how the mums react is maybe not exactly as it always would go. Mm. Um, or as, as I've seen it kind of presented stereotypically, you know, sometimes you have the mum being kind of okay with it and the dad's not okay with it, but the mum eventually gets there and brings the dad on yeah, side. Yeah. Um, and I kind of didn't want to go down that road no. um, of being that cliche. Um, so I, I've presented that a little differently. Um, and and I kind of stand by Hannah, who is the, the, yeah, the, woke, the woke character. character. Um, because I, I've I've met people like that. Yeah, I've who, met people like that too. That's yeah. why it was nice to see it in a book. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, I th- and I think there's people who will be, um, you know, without slamming people because I want people to keep doing this, which is, you know, being open to, to gay people. Yeah. Um, but they'll be very open at, to the idea and they'll be very open kind of publicly on Facebook and they'll say they're probably, yeah, yeah. probably those rights. And then someone kind of says to them, I'm gay, and they're like, oh, hang on, how does this affect me? Yeah, exactly. And I guess the Making main thing for me to, to message through here would be it's not about you when someone comes out as gay. Yeah. It's really about that person and, and give them some support um, and don't think about, oh, this is going to wreck my friendship with them or how am I feeling? Maybe, maybe in that moment prioritise them and yeah. their feelings Yeah, it's I th- pretty vulnerable. Yeah, I think that's a really good thing that you need to, you know, that, that you get with this book. You know, it's not about you. It's actually mm. about this person and what they're going through. Yes. Um, yeah, that's one thing I really liked. Um, one thing I didn't always like were the boys themselves, I have to admit. Um, and that was because they reminded me way too much of the boys I went to school with. Which, Good. Which, exactly. It's a credit to you because I'm like, oh, this is way too believable. I'm going I'm going, I'm going back to high school here. Um, because they were little shits at times. Mm, mm. Um, and you can understand a lot of it as well. It's so funny you say little shits because I think I'm, I'm like one of six kids yeah. and like all my older siblings, whenever they get pissed off with me or we have a fight, I yeah. get called a little shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, and now my character's a little shits too. <laughs> but, you know, like teenage boys, you know, well, teenage kind of, I mean, we can all be little shits, especially when we're kind of put in these circumstances. What I found um, interesting was how they, they kind of, they were little shits often, they wanted to affirm their masculinity by being cruel to women Um Particularly, I'm thinking of like Hammer's dad kept encouraging this really horrible mm. attitude towards women, and um, I'd love to know what you would like boys, straight and gay, to kind of take away from your book, both in how they understand their own masculinity, but how they relate it to others. This is a really good question. Um, I think, weirdly, I'm not upset that you didn't like the boys. Yeah, I actually feel like good. Yeah, that's... Um, because when I wrote this, I didn't want to write like a textbook. Yeah, like I didn't. Um, and I do see a lot of texts coming out now that are particularly keen on showing kind of being gay is good and, and you mm. know, it's, it's a happy experience, which it really can be. So let, like, yeah, let's, let's yeah. make sure that's seen as a good thing. Mm. Um, but often the characters are made to be like completely not flawed and yeah. completely just like, you know, they're, they're a pure gay boy and, and they're a victim of everything else, um, which is sometimes how it can feel, but it's certainly mm. not true. Everyone's human, right? Yeah. Um, so I really want to represent three really flawed boys. Mm. Um, in terms of what you're talking about, in terms of the masculinity, um, I think I feel like Hammer's the the main culprit Hammer's again definitely here. The main culprit, yeah. <laughs> um, the way he treats Rochelle, for example, um, yeah. the way he treats, um, you know, like pretty much every female he comes across, yeah. um, and I think it comes through to that kind of that that code of what being masculine is, right? Mm. And so there's certain things in that kind of traditional masculine Aussie guy thing that you've got to tick off, yeah. And th- and it's kind of quite binary. It's either you do this, you're masculine; you do that, you're not masculine. So if you distance yourself from the feminine. 
mm. or you know like put yeah. it, you know like show you know distance yourself is probably the best way I can put it then you're more masculine mm. um if you have sex with women then that reaffirms that you're masculine yeah. because well if you if you're not masculine you're gay mm. so if you have sex with women you're not gay therefore you're masculine mm. so it's just this cyclical thing that that continues to uh perpetuate itself mm. over and over through cultures yeah uh, you know we see it everywhere um so i i think in terms of hammer that's something i want to show yeah. that that's a real thing that um well, we see that all the time anyway. It's not really um, mm. news, but hey, perhaps it's different seeing it in a gay character. Yeah. Um, in terms of what I wanted to get across, I don't know because I really don't want to be didactic and tell someone um, here's what it's like to be masculine or I don't want to prob- problematize kind of um, masculinity mm. in itself. Um, but I guess I've always been averse to any kind of masculine expression that that needs to put other people down in any way, whether it's kind of... Um, like misogynistic crap, like mm. what, what Hammer's dad's going to, that path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or whether it's even violence or kind of hazing or any kind of stuff that puts other people down. I don't think that's particularly masculine. I think it's particularly weak. Yeah. Um, and I've always seen it as kind of that that kind of I need to fit into the wolf pack, so I'll do I'm anything. I'll do conform. anything. I'll compromise yeah. any moral compass I have to make sure I fit into that. And I don't think that's strong at all. No. I think strong men resist those kind of things, mm. and and the men I look up to have always resisted those kind of. Um, that that need to to fit in at all other costs. Mm. Yeah, and I think that you do see that in some of the other things that other characters do. Some of the things that Zeke does, some of the things that Charlie does. You definitely see that being pl- like mm. playing out. Mm. And um, I, I I do really I, I want to pick up on what you're saying. You didn't want to create that kind of stereotypical like boy that's you know victimized and so on. Like mm, mm. um. That's what I mean. Like I did find these boys just so believable and at times, yeah, I was like, oh, you're being such a shit. And other times I'm like, oh, my goodness, I just want to give you a big hug. And other times <laughs> I'm like, wow, like you actually took that really well. Like, mm. you know, good on you, mate. Like, <laughs> um, So I think, yeah, um, yeah, we didn't have to like the boys all the time, you know. Yeah, um, I think that's important to me. I think, I think those reactions you just mentioned, the fact that we can have all those reactions from the same character yeah. at different times. It's really nice. I think it's really human. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I would love to also, um, so we've talked a little bit about Hammer um, mm. and and how he's been struggling with things. Um, there's a particular puberty book that you reference called mm. What's Happening to My Body? And this is something that Hammer keeps keeps grabbing at and because it refers to homosexuality as a phase that will, and I'm quoting here, usually pass in time. The first thing I want to know is, is this book real? <laughs> um, yes, but I changed the title. So okay. <laughs> yes, this book exists. Yeah. Um, it, it would have been published in the 70s or 80s. Yeah. Um, so again, so my siblings are kind of, my brother's 12 years older than me. Mm. So it would have been kind of for their generation. Um and I don't know how it ended up in our house, but so at some point it's ended up in our house. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that book did exist. And mm. it's something I um, I briefly told my own, like my true story. I mean, this book's fiction. Mm. I told my true story um, through Bright Light, Snow City at the Centre for Stories last mm. year. And I kind of referenced that same book as well because that was kind of, it was pivotal. And that's one of the few things, there's not many of them. Mm. There's a few things in this novel that are drawn pretty directly um, from from experiences that I had. And, and that's one of them that, Reading that kind of made me, well, it fucked me up. Let's put yeah, it that way. Yeah. <laughs> because because you read that when you're a teenager and you go, oh, cool, it's just a phase. Why isn't it going away? Yeah. And I think that's what you see Hammer going through a mm-hmm. lot. And, you know, um, 
And I think, uh, you know, I got, I think we all get given when we're teenagers one of those books that's kind of like just left in your room, you know. <laughs> it just shows up one day on your just, pillow. And you're like, okay, what are they, what are they trying to say here? Um, what I'd, I'd love to know is how, how maybe your book might challenge or counter some of the things that kids might be reading about puberty and growing up. Mm. Um, I hope it does. What I kind of aimed mm. to do with this book was to show everything and not show a particularly idealised version, mm. certainly not a clean version yeah. of life. I mean, you know, it's it's pretty dirty in some parts. <laughs> yeah. and I don't just mean sexually, but just like it's a bit, it's a bit you know, grimy yeah. um, in parts. Um, and I want to show that because um, I think we're seeing maybe less of that these days in fiction. Like mm. I don't think, I don't think films, you know, you might've seen that in films and TV a while back. And I think these days you, you, that kind of, this is a total tangent. I'm going to be very brief. No, it's you know, cool. that kind of range of films that kind of explored real stuff yeah. um, have kind of evaporated. And you've got either now indie, really low budget films or um, blockbuster things that yeah. are just like Marvel, you know. Yeah, just um, completely universe. out there. Yeah. yeah, but nothing to do with actual kind of representing what life is really like mm. and what it's like to grow up mm. as a boy and, or, or, as a, or even like just puberty yeah. in general, what it's like. Um, so I feel like literature has a really big role to play in that. And I think for boys in particular, the way boys learn about sex is through porn mm. mostly um, these days. And so, well, porn or direct experience, but usually, you know, they'll start wanking when they're, you know, you know early teens or whatever. Mm. So I wanted to actually show that. Yeah. I didn't want to kind of go, oh, and maybe something's happening so, in the background. Yeah, yeah. This is what's happening. This is mm. what it looks like. Yeah. And and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. And I mean, to talk about that, because if we don't talk about it in literature, then the only place you are learning about it is literally in porn. Mm. Yeah. And, and at least you can kind of, you're kind of framing it in a particular way that can, I think help people work out their feelings and also work out how they maybe fit in the world even. I hope so. Yeah. And, and and I guess in, in terms of kind of homosexuality compared to that book, um, I think it's probably hammered in, no pun intended, Yeah. Um, that, that, you know, being gay is not a phase. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I don't imagine it is for anyone. Maybe I, I could stand to be corrected by one individual in particular maybe um, if someone has gone through that. But, mm. but in general, this is not a phase. You know, like yeah. that, that if, if you have these feelings, it's okay to have those feelings and, and it won't kill you, it won't bowl you over. Yeah. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about the imagery in your book. Mm. Um, some of it's really like stark and raw and some of it is just so beautiful and poetic. I'm thinking particularly of the mouse traps, which I found just so visceral. Mm. Um, and then the canola fields, which were just so beautiful, but also so heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the imagery in your book and how they all tie into the book's broader themes? Yeah, totally. I, I love that you kind of responded yeah, to those Yeah, I really did. Those two images. in particular, just I was like, oh. Like, That's so cool. Yeah. Um, so I guess they're both drawn from... Um, what I saw around me growing up. Mm. So, so with the with the mice and with the mouse traps and um, that particular metaphor, um, we grew up in a house right near the Chapman River in Jordan. So yeah. we used to get a lot of mice mm. coming into the house, and so I just grew up with that being part of kind of um, existence. Sadly, um, but there was a time in particular when I had to. Um, there was a mouse trapped on a glue trap, right? Mm. And it was physically trapped on this glue trap. Um, it's very similar to what yeah. Zeke has in the book, um, and it was like squeaking and. Like yeah. it was freaking out. It was trapped. It was going to die. Yeah. Um. But it was just stuck there and couldn't move. And I was like, at the house, you know, dad was out, and I was like, 
what do I do? So mm-hmm. I had to beat it to death with a brick. Yeah. Um, because, like, that's what Dad did. Yeah. So I was like, cool, I'm going to go outside and beat this mouse to death. And for some reason when I was writing this book years later, that, that particular that kept moment back. kept coming yeah. back that I had to kind of do that and it became a broader metaphor, I guess, for um, for the desperation you feel mm. when when dying is or seems more merciful than, than continuing to suffer. Mm. Um, and I guess the mouse is kind of a nice little metaphor for, for how, you know, homosexuality is seen as so, you know, subaltern and invisible and, you know, the mice mm. run around, you can't really see them, but but it's happening, yeah. but you don't see it on the surface. Um, the canola fields was um, a really cool one as well. It's very iconically Jero. Mm, like, yeah, I've, I've, I, I would visit Geraldton quite a lot because um, I had a friend who was working there mm. years and years ago. And, yeah, I'd always remember those fields just, just yeah, it's endless. It's stunning, isn't it? Yeah. As, and as you kind of come into town through Greenwich, you know, like it's just big carpet mm. of yellow. Mm. Um, so it's something, I guess, when I was looking at the setting, I was just kind of like, oh, yeah, I'll incorporate that into the story. Um, and then the more I wrote, the more it kind of turned into... Um, a metaphor, you know, you've got these lupins growing in, in the mm. canola field and you're like, well, why is, you know, why is something happening here when it's not meant to? It's just meant to be all yellow. Yeah. It's purple see- um, creeping in. Um, and I thought that was a cool metaphor for for how, um, you know, sexuality can feel like it happens without your consent. And to a degree it kind of does mm. because we're not really in control no, of that. You don't um, decide. <laughs> you don't decide. But mm. but when you are, when you're growing up and you're at odds with your sexually, uh, sexual orientation, um, you can feel like, why can't I? Why can't I control this? I should be able to change this, mm. and you can't. Mm. I, it comes back to that. So yeah. I thought that was a cool metaphor to kind of to go through, and especially again linking in with Hammer. Yeah, that was a good absolutely. Metaphor for him. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, talking about keep mentioning Hammer again. Well, I, I know I he's wanna, like taking all the limelight. He is, isn't what he? A yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's. I'm going to now move on to like mental health, which mm. I think. Mm obviously is a huge theme in your book. It's at the moment we've got a mental health epidemic among boys and men in Australia. Men are three more, three times more likely to kill themselves than women and suicide is the biggest killer of people aged 15 to 44. Mm. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you tried to address these issues in your book and what you hope at-risk teens might take away from Invisible Boys? Yeah, this is so this is so important to me, mm. this stuff. Um, so obviously I went through that um, myself when I was a teen, um, mm. I, I wanted to take my own life for a long time. And, um, I guess what I want to see is, is guys and, and young guys for sure, mm. but guys at any point really reaching out for help. Yeah. Um, I think the reason the statistics are so bad, um, and it's, and it's scary at the, at the lower end. Cause if you look at young yeah, teens, like young men, I think that's one of the leading or the leading cause yeah, of death. Is, yeah. Um, but if you look at the very other end, when, when men get to about 80 to 85, mm. their rate of suicide like skyrockets, whereas 80 to 85-year-old women are seeking support, mm. talking to friends, like yeah. still trying to remain connected to community. And, and, and once, once men lose, I don't know, their jobs or their, their partner passes away or whatever, mm. there's this tendency to go, well, there's nothing. There's yeah. nothing left to live for. Yeah. I'm out. Um, so it's really, it's really upsetting. Mm. Um, I think what I'd love to see is um, more male vulnerability. I think we need to learn to be okay with it mm. and that it doesn't mean we sit there sobbing on a couch every five seconds. Mm. Um, it actually means that we can sit with our feelings and not be overwhelmed by them mm. um, because most, you know, most guys I think, and I've been one of them, you know, you can tend to try to um, manage your feelings with with uh, substances, for example, or um, mm. you can become a really angry guy or um, 
all kinds of ways they're not really helpful. But I think if you can get to the point where you can just sit with your emotions and actually live with them and realize they're survivable, survivable, um, that would be a really good thing. Mm. So if I could see more of that um, in society and people who read the book and realize that they can reach out, that being vulnerable can make you strong. Yeah. Um, I'd love to. I, I'd love to see that. I think there's definitely that. Um for some of the characters where you see that they've gone through just such horrendous stuff and they've been so vulnerable but they've just still, like, just mm. gone through it. Mm. Charlie's know? a trooper. Like, oh, I, absolutely. <laughs> He's such a trooper. I've got a lot of time for Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he deals with a lot of stuff. He does and he just takes it. <laughs> yeah. I would love to know a bit more about the writing of the book itself. Mm. So now I believe this book took you only two months to write and a further four to edit it. Mm. Now, you might have heard it took me 12 years to write I heard my book. on the grapevine, yeah. Yeah, just, just 12 years. <laughs> um, so what I want to know is how on earth did you do it? Because I really need to take some pointers of how to write a book quickly or, yeah, I'd love to know mm, how you did mm. it. Uh, me too. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I wish I knew. Mm. Um, no, that, that was purely born from failure. Um, mm. So I spent a lot of time on a fantasy novel. Mm-hmm. Um, a young adult novel, and that was kind of adapted from some fan fiction, some Pokemon fan fiction. Awesome. <laughs> um, I, I wrote when I was a teenager, so I'd been writing that since two thousand and one. Um, so I'd been working on that. I've been working on you know that fan fiction for ten years. Mm-hmm. It was literally a decade. Yeah. And then I went, okay, I'm going to completely remove it from that and make an original novel of my own. You know, kind of adapted from that, but for very original. Um, and I worked on that for years. So mm-hmm. actually. I spent a lot of years on this failed project yeah. and it was really, when I subbed it around to agents, um, an agent was interested. He picked it up and said, I want to read your whole novel. I've read the whole novel. And then, and then he kind of went, actually, it's not good enough. Mm. Um, and that was heartbreaking. Yeah. Not because it was an agent saying your book's not good enough, but because when he said that to me, I was like, shit, he's right. Mm. That's really hard. Yeah. Like, oh, he's right. My book's not good enough. Mm. And so I, um, I gave up on that project altogether mm. and you know, kind of sobbed and rendered my garments and yeah. like had a big tantrum for about a month. Yeah. And then I went, okay, that's it. I'm going to write something that's real. Like, like, and it was really like a, a fuck everything moment. Mm. Like I just, I, I gave no shits about anything. Mm. There were, and I went, there are no sacred cows for this book. I'm going to write about the thing that hurt me the most mm. in my life. What is that? And I went straight to this, you know, yeah, like growing up gay and, and all that I went through. And I'm going to write about that. No sacred cows, no fucks given. Mm. I'm going to write how I feel. And I'll give myself permission to just write badly as well. Like if it, if it's a terrible book, who cares? Because yeah. I've just spent all these years on this other one, and that went nowhere. Yeah. So what does it matter if I, you know, just write a crap novel now? Mm. Um, and that was really freeing. Yeah. Because I didn't. I wasn't sitting there thinking this has to be the book. Yeah. You know, I wasn't sitting there going. It's not for anyone is, else. Yeah. yeah. It was just I'm going to write this, mm. and it's going to make me feel really good. And it did. So yeah. I, I became completely obsessed. Two months, and it just roared out of me, and it was so ready to be told that story. Yeah. It was really really cool. You know, it's it's funny you talking about that. Like you just kind of, it's like yeah, no fucks given. Like <laughs> like while it took me a lot longer with my book, um, a lot of the things that every time I'd stall, it would be because I was thinking about the audience. Uh-huh. You know, I was always like, oh, who am I writing this for? What do what do I want to say? And and my husband would always be like, just this isn't for anyone else. Mm, this mm. may never see the light of day. And it's yeah. so, and I think after so long I was like, this is never going to see the light of day. <laughs> like, okay, I'm just going to write what I want to read. And, um, yeah, that was quite freeing and I think that's where I actually started to really get momentum and to finish it. So I think that's a really good um, thing that writers can take away from, just, you know, yeah, no fucks given, as you say. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a terrible thing and I'm sure um, 
I'm sure I shouldn't have, you know, dropped so many F-bombs in this podcast. Oh, okay. But, um, but uh, you know, they're in the novel, so too bad. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think I think the thing that works was like, I give my, and I do it now every time I go mm. to a new story, a new novel, a new short story, I'm like, I give myself permission to write total horseshit. Yeah. And I just say that to myself. I'm like, this can be absolute crap. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be good. Mm. And that frees you up because yeah, you don't try does. to think about making it good. And, and it sounds yeah. like you had that same moment where you went, Screw it. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I'm just going to do what, what I want to do. And that actually brings me to a question I've got. And this mm. is this is the question that I kept having in my head. And I'm like, how do I ask him this? Yeah. Because yeah. this is what I really, really want to know. Um, so obviously I wasn't writing for any audience. So when mm. when Frio Press said, you've won, hooray, here's this contract. Yes, yes. Um, and then they're like, well, this is going to be a young adult novel. And I'm like, okay, cool. Okay, awesome. Yep. Um, I was a little worried, though, that they'd kind of want to, like, change part of it for the audience. And... Um, I was happy to say, no, they're, they're all good with it. Um, but then I read your book and I was thinking, hey, I'm totally fine. <laughs> there's <laughs> nothing like this in my book. Yeah. Um, because there's a lot of confronting stuff in Invisible Boys. You know, there's sex scenes, violence, suicide, profanity. So I'd, I'd really love to know, was there anything that your editor or even you took out of the book? And how do you decide what is or for want of a better word, appropriate for mm. young adult audiences. <laughs> yeah, look, you're fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I reckon you're fine. Um, so it's a really interesting space um, mm. because I've when, when I worked on that fantasy novel, I there were there were certainly things with YA mm. that you can't do. Yeah. Um, and I remember my mentor at the time, who was an editor um, on that book, said mm. um, I had someone being shot in cold blood. Mm. She's like, oh, you can't have someone. You know, you can't do oh, that. That's wow. too much. And I, I was like, okay, well, whatever. I'm not taking that. <laughs> I took 95% of her advice, not that one thing. Yeah, sure. And so I submitted the next draft and went, here you go. And it was still in there. Mm. And she just gave me this really harsh note of like, you cannot have a YA book with someone getting shot in cold blood. And I went, okay, well, okay. point taken. And I'm sure she was right because mm. she's, you know, she's been an editor. She's done a lot of books. Yeah. Um, but I remember thinking, well, there's a hard limit because there's gatekeepers, right? Yeah. Um, and, and personally, I don't think, I don't think you... I think most teenagers have seen someone getting shot in cold blood in a film, oh. much more graphically than <laughs> you see in a novel, yeah. um, by the age of probably 12 as mm. opposed to 15 to 18. You know, yeah. like I, I, it's out there. Yeah. Um, so personally when I approach these things, I, I don't think at all about censoring. So I don't censor yeah. myself at all. Mm. Um, I figure that's the job of the publisher to then come in and say, here's what will work for the market and here's won't. Like yeah. uh, uh, here's what won't. Um, and if... You know, if you've got the situation where you've got a, a story that's, you know, it's so far beyond YA that it's not going to be put into, you know, bookshops or schools or libraries, mm. then, yeah, you've got a problem. Um, for me, for this book, I didn't have to change much. I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah. Um, I thought I would. I thought I'd have to change more, actually. So mm. when I sat down with um, Kate, who's my publisher, yeah. um, I was like, okay, I was like ready to, I was ready to kind of. You were of, ready to fight to, certain to things? To protect all, all yeah, my, yeah, yeah. actually mostly the sex scenes is what I was, yeah. I was worried about because there's graphic sex and it's, and it's graphic homosexual sex. Mm. And I thought, oh, there'll be issues with that. Um, but no, the thing we took out was C-bombs. Oh, uh-huh. there, there's one though, isn't there? There's, yes. yes. There's, uh, there's one or two. Okay. I don't know if I remember. Uh, I, the one I'm I, thinking of is. Charlie delivered that bomb towards yes. the end, and I like yes. that one. Yes. <laughs> I was like, okay, good. Yeah, and that's and so that's why, and I'm glad it works that way. So yeah, the idea does. was because I had because if you've heard teenage boys talk, which you have, <laughs> yes, um, the C bomb is everywhere. I mean, yeah. there's probably no population in the world that uses the C bomb more frequently than teenage boys. Mm. Um, so I had it peppered throughout the manuscript, um, and I was told, look, you have to cut that out. And I was like, 
okay, but I, you know, and, and it was like, you can keep them for impact, mm. but they need to be impactful. Like they, have, they actually have a purpose. You can't just have them in every sentence. Yeah. Which is totally good advice, by the way. Well, it <laughs> made that that last, when Charlie delivered that in that particular context, I'm not going to give it away, um, it made it really powerful. Mm, so that's good. That was good advice. That's great. I'm <laughs> yeah, so glad to hear cool. that. So it worked. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought we'd have to drop the sex scenes, but um, they were happy to kind of, to lean into that. Yeah. Mm. Um, which I thought was a great innuendo, but yeah. <laughs> I, um, I, I let that pass. Um, but no, I don't think there's a lot you have to change. I think teenage audiences are really savvy. Like, I don't think we need to protect them as much as absolutely. perhaps adults think they need to be protected. Like, mm. they're already exposed to way more than than their parents know. Mm. Um, I think we need to give them some credit for the fact that they can process things um, and understand yeah. these kind of graphic things. Absolutely. Um, I actually... Um, I'm on maternity leave at the moment, but my regular day job is a library officer at a primary school. Oh, right. So I'm used to having um, parents coming up to me and saying, you know, I don't want my child to read this. I want my child to read this. And, you know, certain things are kind of seen as, you know, inappropriate or, and it's really interesting some of the things that people come out with. Um, I saw a review, one of the first reviews of your book, obviously saying it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but one of the things it said in it was that they were worried that, um, school libraries may have a problem with it. And I'm really fascinated by that idea mm. that, that th- this book, you know, is, like you say, everything in it, kids have already been exposed to it. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm just fascinated by how you think libraries are going to be responding to it, especially school libraries, not libraries themselves, but school libraries. Mm. Have you had any interesting kind of reactions with school librarians or parents or anything like that yet? Or are you anticipating that? I feel like um, I have like the bad boys theme, like playing yeah, in the background exactly, right now. Like yeah. I'm, I'm so dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, look, I, I I actually am really proud of this book, Pushing mm, the Boundaries, and absolutely. it does. And I'm, I'm proud of that because I think no one wants to read something that's safe. Mm. Um, all the responses have been surprisingly positive, mm. even by those kind of – so so school yeah. librarians um, – even in religious schools, yeah. so faith schools, have embraced it mm. and have actually gone, this is cool, this is an important story. Yeah. Um, I've done author talks there um, and I've said, oh, look, here's my talk. Do you want me to change anything to kind of, you know, but no, it's perfect. Yeah. They actually really, they understand that this message is I think, important. I think librarians especially are always, you know, pretty pretty open. It's, it's I often think so too. like um, – Sometimes I, I think sometimes you might get like principals, teachers, or even parents. I think parents are the big one that uh-huh, you might yeah. be. I was gonna say, I, 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 like yeah. teachers and librarians haven't given me any. Like I think yeah. they're pretty. Un, they pretty yeah. much understand why this is important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so no, all positive. Yeah, so far. That's I'm wonderful. sure I'll eventually get you know something come up, but yeah, so far so good. Yeah, it's just, it, for, for, yeah for me it's fascinating. Like yeah, what um, you know we think is and is not appropriate for young adults is always mm-hmm. just quite fascinating for me, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, like I've seen other YA authors talk about like what they think is appropriate and what they put mm. in and, and how they decide, oh, that's not really appropriate for my audience and I don't do that. No, like well, I, I obviously didn't do that either. I was just like, I'm just going to write. I think that's a, I, I personally feel that's a, a, well, it's a more authentic approach. Yeah. I think you're just literally going, this is the story, this is what needs to be told and you know, if there's really any major issues, your publisher will step in. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you're fine. But I think it's a better way to be. I don't. Mm. I don't think about oh, these guys are young and they're not going to understand. Like I. Yeah. I, that's that no. feels really patronising yeah, to me. So I don't absolutely. do it. Yeah. Yeah, and let, let the publisher can handle that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Leave it to they'll, them. They'll do it. <laughs> Thank um, you, Fremantle Press. We love you. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, now, 
your book has won three awards already. It's not even out yet. I know. Um, it's amazing. <laughs> um, so what advice would you give new and emerging writers on how to get your foot in the door of, you know, prizes, residencies, publishing, all this kind of stuff? Mm. Um, so I guess firstly, like, this brings a lot of imposter syndrome. So I feel like I just yeah. need to mention that. I, because, yeah, I hear you. Um, yeah. You would, you would yeah, know, right? You've uh, won this big award and you're like, I don't deserve this. Yeah. Um, did, did they make a mistake? <laughs> like, did they read my... I, the first thing I thought was, did they actually read my book? Or did they mix it up with someone else's book? <laughs> but that's such a... Yeah. It's a real thing. You get this imposter syndrome and, mm. and you don't believe you're good enough. Mm. Um, everything I've won to date, I've always been like, maybe there were only two books in the running and the second one was really shit. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, and maybe that's the only reason I want, but I really think that because, mm. and so it's great when the Hungerford says there were 60 something books. I'm like, yeah. Oh, it's true. Mm. Um, so lots of imposter syndrome. Mm. Um, it's very unnerving to have people take you seriously after a very long period of having no one take you seriously. Mm. Um, so I'm still kind of adjusting to that. Um, in terms of other people, in terms of advice for getting your foot in the door, mm. I think the foot in the door metaphor is actually a really good one sure. because I feel like, especially these days, I don't know if it's always been like this, but I feel like the author does need to put their foot in the door mm. as opposed to waiting for doors to kind of magically open for them because publishing is a very competitive environment. Mm. Um, there are loads and loads of authors and there are very few um, publishers and those publishers have, you know, lists with, full of existing authors on them. Mm. Um, so it's very hard to get a foot in the door. Mm. I think the the best thing I learned is to apply and query really widely yeah. So, like, I would just apply for everything under the sun mm. and most of the things you get back are rejections. Yeah. So for all the things, like, you know, in 2018, 2019 that, that I had accepted, there were at least 10 times that number of things that got rejected. Yeah. Um, and each of those was kind of really shattering. But, yeah. uh, but rejection is the norm. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, so I would I would suggest to people to query really widely and get used to feeling rejected and mm. just that's part of the game for everyone. Um, and then get out there, like just like mm. make some noise, like get on social media, um, go to events, mm. meet people, um, build your skills. Mm. Even if you've kind of done a course, even yeah. if you've done a degree in writing, um, you, you constantly need to be building your skills, whether it's through mentorship or, or getting a residency or just um, doing PDs, mm. something to upskill yourself. Um, and through those opportunities, you meet other people. Mm. I think finding it like a tribe as a writer is really important. Yeah. Um, I've used Twitter like that to, yeah. to kind of do that. But um, I think that's a vital part of the process. And I think doing those kind of things, you can start to get noticed and mm. and from there hopefully have your manuscript looked at. Looked at, yeah. Mm. Well, you, you mentioned social media and Twitter. Um, you, I think you're really quite prolific on social media. I, I actually enjoy following you and saying, oh, okay, what's he doing today? Um, <laughs> Another gym selfie. Yeah, exactly, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you've created quite a community um, with those gym selfies. <laughs> um, do you have any tips for other writers who want to engage their audience and create community with other writers? Totally. Um, two main things. Mm. So um, one is be human. Yeah. So when I started on Twitter, I was uh, like a sales bot because I yeah, didn't understand sure. it. Yeah. And I was, <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. So I was um, putting out my short stories and saying, hey, here's a short story. Everyone read it. Buy, like, not buy, but like, yeah, here's yeah, a, yeah. like click on the link and, and read my short story. And I was just doing that over and over. Mm. I was like, why aren't I making friends? <laughs> why mm. is no one talking to me? Um, and what I learned over time is that it's, it's not about sales. Mm. Um, it's about relationships. Mm. So it's about meeting other people who are into what you're into or who can support you and you can support them and it's reciprocal. Mm. Um, so being human and authentic is really important. Um, 
And second is time. So if you want to have like a really good time, uh, a really good social media strategy, mm. you've got to put in like a block of time for it kind of every day. Mm. So I, I learned from someone through a webinar um, that, you know, he's like, if you want to succeed on Twitter, 30 minutes every day. And I went, oh my God, 30 minutes every day. Like I'm not doing that. That's insane. Yeah. Um, but I thought that for about five minutes and I thought, well, I took this webinar for a reason. Uh, I, mm. I wanted to learn how to succeed at these things and this is what he's telling me to do. So mm. I'll try it. Um, and these days, so I've done that ever since. I've mm. done 30 minutes every day and these days it'll be, you know, an hour to two hours yeah. uh, across all my social media platforms per day. Um, but that's what works. That's what, mm. um, and it's not just kind of posting your own shit and then walking away. It's like, what are my, what are my friends doing? What are yeah. other people in this area doing? And engaging with them and chatting with them. Yeah, well, that's how I, I kind of discovered you because you'd said, I think it was something about the, the Fogarty Award and it was like, Holden Shepherd. oh, congratulations, Rebecca. And I'm like, who's this guy? And I clicked and I was like, oh, okay, he won the Hungerford Award, okay. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I come at people like that on Twitter all the time. Sorry. No, but that's awesome because then I was like, oh, cool, this guy who's like really doing so well is like giving me a little G up. It was it was a really nice thing to, to have a, that nice little feeling. So, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, I like doing that. Like, And that's mm. what people have done for me, like, and I yeah. think that's why I like social media. Like if, if, if you chat to someone who gets you mm. um, and it doesn't have to be, like, it's not like your best friends, but that you get this world. Yeah. And I grew up in a family that is really, really far removed from publishing and writing. Yeah. And so when you say something like, I got a residency at Veruna, they're like, <laughs> well, is that a big deal? Yeah. And, and you kind of have to explain. Yeah. You know, like, kind of have to explain that like, it's this, massive this is deal. really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas on Twitter, you don't have to. You're like, these people know that that's a big deal for you. Mm. And, you know, the Fogarty Award is a big deal for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, now, another thing I saw on Twitter, and this probably sounds like I'm stalking you. I'm just like, oh, what else have you done on Twitter? <laughs> it's fine. Um, is, is that you have already finished your next book. Yes. My, and I was just sitting there going, my goodness, how does he do it? And what I, but what I do want to know is, can you tell us anything about this new book? Um, I'll be really cagey about it because, That's okay. <laughs> because I, I, even with Invisible Boys, um, I've always been cagey about up until it kind of won things and then it was out mm. there. Um, so yeah, the next book is, it's gritty upper YA yep. kind of crossover, cool. um, similar to Invisible Boys in terms of tone, mm -hmm. um, less about purely being gay. There is a gay character, mm -hmm. um, uh, but it's, it's multiple characters and it's more about kind of, uh, toxic relationships and friendships and kind of what happens when you've got this high school group of friends and then high school's over Yeah, and, and what happens to those relationships. Um, so that's me being deliberately cagey about it. That's um, okay. But, I, uh, <laughs> I mean, you could even tell me about the process of writing it even or how yeah, is it yeah. different from writing Invisible Boys? Well, actually this one, this is like a hybrid-y kind of one. So I started this after the, the fantasy novel mm -hmm. um, and I started it for a little while and then got about 30,000 words in. And it just wasn't clicking. Yeah. So this is kind of in between that and Invisible Boys. And mm. I really wanted to finish this one, but Invisible Boys kind of came out of nowhere. And I was like, I have to write this. Like yeah. it came out so quickly. Um, so I've been working on this actually for quite a while. Um, it's kind of been put on the back burner so many times mm. when I've had edits to do for Invisible Boys or when I've done Poster Boy, which is my novella. Yeah. Um, so it's all just been put back. And then I finally got around to it and mm. uh, finished it. Um, and I'm pretty excited about it. It's kind of, um, this kind of, Currently, there's five points of view, mm -hmm. so it's like wow, multiple cool. narrators, awesome. Um, which is really challenging. I will never do that again. By the way, I, I like I'm already like I'm on the second draft. I'm like, why did I do this? <laughs> like three in Invisible Boys was enough. Yeah. Um, and I don't know why I've done five. Mm. It's it's actually it's doing my head in, but it does work for this story. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a challenge. 
I, I, I would encourage everyone to never do this. Ever, <laughs> ever, ever. <laughs> well, if you pull it off, though. <laughs> <laughs> if I pull it off, then yeah. great, yeah. Um, but no, I'm pretty excited. I'm pretty excited about that one. And it feels like a good kind of a story to follow up with mm. um, from after Invisible Boys because I think it's it's still it's still full on, but it's maybe less dark. It's definitely less suicide-y. Mm. Which less suicide which, okay. which is a plus in my book. Yeah. I don't want to have like every book be like, oh, and that's the gay guy who tried to kill it or wanted to kill himself. Yeah. You know, like it, um, this one's a bit more of a... A fictional story and it's less about my own trauma. Mm, cool. Um, so we've talked a little bit about, obviously, writing, winning the Hungerford. I'd love to know how has it changed your life and um, what can I expect as the win winner of the Fogarty Award? Oh, buckle up. Buckle up. Um, <laughs> no, it, look, you'll get lots of attention mm-hmm. um, and it depends on the kind of person you are. Yeah. Um, I'm a really sensitive person, so mm. I I kind of um, and I think most I think a lot of authors are like this, where you really crave the attention because you're like, I know deep down that I'm a good author, and mm. I, like you know I really believe I am, and you want to be acknowledged, and then the moment that happens, you're like, why the hell is everyone acknowledging me? This, this is, is scary. Too much. Yeah, yeah, this is scary. I can't, I can't handle this. Um, so I've spent most of you know the last year kind of going, oh, I'm so overwhelmed, and this is too much, and people are saying, enjoy it, enjoy it, mm. um, and it's hard to do. Yeah. So, very hypocritically, I would say try to enjoy it, yeah. even though it's very hard to um, to always live by that. Mm. Um, but you're, you're going through kind of probably a transitional phase now between being um, a lesser known emerging mm. author and being someone who's actually an award-winning author who's got a really great manuscript that's about to come out. Mm. Um, so it's going to be like a transformational year for you. Mm. Um, you've probably already started to go through, you know, those those feelings. Or maybe you're really well equipped and you're totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> Even when you were saying you're an award-winning author, I'm like, I feel really uncomfortable with you saying that. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, I've I've gone through that. Don't worry. I was yeah. like, I can't say that about myself. Um, mm. Eventually, you get used to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's full on, and it's that whole imposter syndrome kind of thing mm. comes through. Um, but it's very positive. It's like a really good thing. Like this is a dream come true. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important to acknowledge that we've worked really hard. Mm. We've put in so many hours over so many years mm. to try to tell a really good story, really authentically. Mm. And now it's been recognised. Yeah. So um, you'll notice that, yeah, you, you'll be booked for for gigs. Um, That's exciting. It is exciting. Booked for gigs. <laughs> uh, booked for gigs yeah. and you'll be, you know, doing author talks and, and people want to hear your story. Like they'll want to mm. know, well, well, you know, where have you been? Because, yeah. you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you came up out of nowhere. I was like, no, I didn't. I've been, I've been around, working for ages. I've been yeah. like <laughs> trying to do this, but like no one had heard of me. Mm. Um, and so same thing, people want to know, well, what's your story? Mm. What's your, and not just your your book, but what's your story about you? Mm. Like people want to know what's your narrative? Where did yeah. you come from? What what did you go through to get here? Mm. Um, so it, it's an overwhelming but joyous experience. I suspect in probably ten years' time, I'll feel more, um, yeah. more kind of jazzed by it than I do now. Like at the moment, I'm like, oh my god, it's still so scary. Mm. Um, but no, I don't know. Have you have you are you coping with it? Um, I, I think it helps that I I have a you know a little baby that uh-huh. kind of keeps me like. <laughs> Even like when I got the call that I'd been shortlisted, he he was crying and I was just like trying to like calm him down. I was, you know, feeding him. I was just, I was like, Uh okay, wow, this is amazing. And then I spent two hours just holding him while I'm in my head going, oh, wow, okay. (laughs) But then I'm like, no, it's okay. So um, I don't think, I still don't think it's fully hit me. I I think Uh a few times when I've been driving, I've been like, oh, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe I never thought this book would see the light of day. Mm, mm. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's fully hit me yet. I think maybe when I 
get a copy in my hands. I've heard mm. I've heard authors talk about the first time they, they yeah, it's a pretty cool moment. They hold their book. Maybe yeah. that'll maybe I'll process it then. But at the moment, I'm still in um, kind of. I've got to deal with my baby, and then I'll deal with this, <laughs> and then I'll deal with my, and then I'll deal with this. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of actually nice to have something to, um, yeah. And even the night when it happened, and I won it, um, yeah, it was a really rough night with my boy again. So oh. um, it was just awake all night, and so yeah, it'll keep you grounded. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of actually it's a nice thing actually to have something else to focus on. Um, yeah, it means I don't have to think about it too much. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Look, it's it's a it's a ride, and yeah. everyone's ride is different. Yeah. So I think just in, enjoy it as much as you can. That's yeah. the best thing I can. That's say. a nice piece of advice. Yeah. Um. So we're coming to the end of our chat now. Um. I am going to ask you to read an excerpt of your book, but before we do, I want to finish with the very very end of your book. Yeah. Um. I'm someone who loves reading dedications and acknowledgements of the books I read. Mm. I, I know that's kind of might be a bit odd, but I, I always read them. I, I do it too, actually. Yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Because um, I feel like I'm getting a glimpse into the person who's actually crafted this world for me. That's mm. what I love about it. And the, f- the final paragraph of your acknowledgements, um, I actually almost got a little bit of a tear when I read it. I was like, oh, like, and I actually read it um, to my mum today as well when I saw oh, it. Wow. And she's like, oh, wow, that's really beautiful. So I'd love for you to read... Um, if you don't mind, read the last paragraph and then I've got two questions for you. So Yeah, totally. Um I yeah, okay, I can get that for you. Awesome. Okay, so this is the last paragraph of my acknowledgments awesome. from Invisible Voice. Lastly, I want to acknowledge two younger versions of myself. My seven year old self, who sat down one day and started writing a book with pen and paper. You finally made it, buddy. And my teenage self, who for a long time didn't want to be on this planet anymore because he was a gay bloke. Good on you for staying alive, you resilient bastard. Turns out you were just good. Sorry. Turns out you were good just the way you are. So, two things I want to know is what was that seven-year-old writing about, and what would you say to all those teenagers out there who don't want to be on this planet anymore because they're gay? Great questions. Cool. Um, so, to the seven-year-old, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, he was writing like nothing profound. Um, I, I was a nine-year-old writing, so okay, I hear cool. you. Yeah. So, so he was writing. Um, I wrote. So do you remember Inna Blyton? Um, yeah. And she had like boarding school stories. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I used to Absolutely. read those as like a seven-year-old and I was like, they're all about girls, like on a boy one. Um, oh, that's So cool. I wrote a boy one and it was about Jake and Jake was 12 and he was going to Clifton Towers, which was like a boarding <laughs> school on the cliffs. Um, and the whole story was just like, you know, like the kids would like be at, um, you know, like at the boarding school and mm. then suddenly someone would fall off a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> and yep. then that was like the main thrust of that chapter. That was the major conflict, yeah. <laughs> and like every time I think about it, like people say, oh, so what was the first thing you ever wrote? I'm like, it was this stupid. You know, like it wasn't stupid. I'm, I'm really, you know, I feel really yeah. kind of protective of it. But it was this, you know, really silly story about falling off cliffs and, mm. and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, so that was my seven-year-old. It wasn't particularly profound, but I've always wanted to write. Mm. Um, and I was very protective of the writing. Like I never yeah. let anyone read anything mm. I wrote. Some of my mates when I was about 14 tried to grab one of my notebooks that I was writing um, a draft in. And I literally, like we literally fought over this book mm. and I ended up tearing it in half wow. because I was like, I'm not letting you have this. Like, yeah, no I'd one rather allowed, destroy it. Yep. No yeah. one is allowed to see into this world. Wow. Um, it was really protective space for me. And it was really, it was kind of the only space I had where I could just be very unfettered and be mm. myself. Yeah. Um, so in terms of teenage boys who are, mm. who don't want to be on the planet, because they're gay. Um, I could give like a 20 million hour yeah. response to this. I'll try to do it in like 20 seconds. Um, 
don't kill yourself. Mm. Um, it will get better. Um, it feels like the end of the world sometimes, but it's really not. Mm. It's really not. Um, you're not in control of your sexuality, but you're in control of your life yeah. and you're in control of who you are. Um, and probably some of the most important things I learned about myself is that I'm good. I'm just inherently good. Yeah. And like you are too. You know, like you're inherently just good. Mm. Um, and you're your own person. You know, mm. you, you, you don't have to worry about what other people are going to say or think or do. Um, so those are things I've learned. Um, I don't think anyone would do this, but maybe if you're a teenage boy or anyone and you want to, you know, you're not happy about being gay, um, give yourself like an hour where you don't beat yourself up for it mm. and just like go down to the beach or something and just look at the ocean and just chill and just take a break from beating yourself up because it's really exhausting, yeah. especially if you're doing it kind of constantly. So just give yourself a break where you're like, you know what, I'm okay. Yeah. And in an hour's time, I'll go back to beating myself up if I have to. Mm. But just for an hour, just don't. Yeah. And, you know, maybe after that hour, don't ever do it again. Yeah. <laughs> just just be nice to yourself. Mm. Um, but that would be my my thing to say. Uh, and the other thing with uh, talking about people who might um, be experiencing, you know, um, thoughts of suicide um, is that there is always support available and there are so many um, numbers and resources to access. Um, the one I would um, recommend calling is Lifeline. Um, so it's 13 11 14. You can call them 24 7. Um, and there's someone there on the phone to just talk you through whatever you're feeling, whether it's a crisis or whether you just need to just talk out what you're going through. Um, and for me personally, reaching out has been something that really helped me um, get through that phase of my life and um, start to actually want to live again. So I really recommend it. Yeah, I think that's wonderful advice. Um, now I would love to get an excerpt from the book, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what are we re- what are we hearing today? Well, look, I've done I've done a few readings and I've I've done Charlie and yep. Zeke, so I feel like it's Hammer's turn. Even though I feel like he monopolized this conversation somehow. Um, That's all right. I'm just going to throw him in there again. Yeah. Um, so this is uh, from Hammer's point of view uh, in his first chapter where he appears um, mm. in chapter three. So this is uh, Hammer. Mm. I spend so much time in the shower that I'm the last one left in the change room. When I shut the tap off, it's suddenly quiet. Painfully quiet. I can't help but think about how nobody said well done on scoring 12 goals. It's like no amount of goals is ever impressive enough to anyone because of who my dad is. Or was. I don't get what I'm supposed to do that I'm not doing. You can't do much better than 12 goals, can you? Like at what point do people actually give you the credit you're due? As I pull my jocks on, a metal latch clicks somewhere in the change room. I glance up. And Charlie Roth is standing stock still at the door of his shower cubicle, looking like he just shat his dax. He spots me, then looks deliberately over my shoulder. Damn it. Were you waiting in there the whole time? I blurt out. He frowns and bustles across the change room to his school bag. He's on the opposite side to me, about five metres away. Yeah, I thought everyone was gone. Without thinking, I rub my towel against my chest, sticking it out slightly. So I bet you like looking at this, huh? Charlie glances up at my chest before turning back to his school bag. His shoulders seem to crumple in on themselves. I could just breathe out the last bit of oxygen in his lungs. Without turning around, he says, You know what, Hammer? You are good looking, actually. But you're the biggest, dumbest meathead in the entire school, and that's so unattractive. Fuck you, man. You don't get to say shit to me or I'll break your legs. Charlie whips around suddenly, facing me. His eyes are bloodshot. Go on then, do it. 
Try laying a hand on me, I'll fucking break it. I don't give a shit about anything anymore. Never seen anything like what I see in his eyes in that moment. It's not that he's been crying and it's not the swearing. It's the pain. His eyes are looking right at mine, but they're totally empty. Like everything that gave him strength drained down the plug hole. Settle down, man. No need to be a psycho. Just piss off and leave me alone, Hammer. Hey, Charlie, listen. Hey, man, you were dumb to come out, you know. Charlie gives me a death stare. I didn't really have a choice in the matter. Nah, but I'm just saying, like, you should have just said it wasn't you. The guys will give you hell for it and, you know, you probably jumped the gun. It's just a phase. Charlie sits on the wooden bench and pulls his socks on. He's got skinny, super hairy legs. They look like they'd snap if you tackled him. Actually, most of the guys are okay with it, he says, looking up at me. It's just you footy jocks who are retrograde. I'm not retrograde, I spit, slipping my socks onto my aching feet. I have no idea what retrograde means. Charlie slides a white-socked foot into his black and neon green skate shoes. If you're not retrograde, then you'll know being gay isn't a phase. Well, yeah, it is. Like, sometimes it is. No, it really isn't. Nah, when you're a teenager, it is. I know this. I read it in a book. It's a hormone thing, because of puberty and whatever. You just go straight later on. Yeah, cop that, dude. Science. (laughs) Was the book from 1975? Charlie laughs. Maybe published by, like, a church group or something? I know what I'm talking about. Charlie gets to his feet, slings his grey CBGB backpack over his scrawny shoulder and trudges along the tiles with his skinny bandy legs. He's headed for the door. Here's some education for you, Hammer. It's never a phase. Have a good night, or don't. I really don't care. He goes to push past me, and involuntarily my arm rises, blocking his way. My heart's pounding harder than when it was when I came in from the footy oval. Charlie frowns at me and looks up. I stare back at him. My jaw's clenched. I want something to happen, but I don't know what. Finally, I growl. You're not a faggot. It is a phase. Just say it. Charlie's frown melts into a wince, his mouth drooping like he just watched a seagull fly into a window attacking its own reflection. Jesus, hammer. Look, I've got like fuck tons of my own shit to deal with right now. I can't deal with your macho homophobic crap as well. He leaves. I shuffle back to the sink and grip onto the porcelain like I'm holding on for dear life. I press all my weight down on the basin, straining my muscles, trying to tear it off the wall, smash it into pieces. I push until my face is brick red. Sink won't move. Damn it! I kick the wall. My toes crumple under the force. And I'm left staring numbly at my reflection. Blonde hair, blue eyes, bronze muscle. The king of the jocks. At 16, I'm already more of a man than someone like weak, pansy little Charlie Roth will ever grow up to be. So why does he make me so fucking angry? Wonderful. That was Holden Shepherd reading from Invisible Boys. Perfect chapter, I think, for our conversation. Yeah, it does actually tie in in the it end, does, doesn't it? It does, perfectly. <laughs> um, Holden, thank you so much. Um, it's been a wonderful chat. Um, wonderful first podcast for me. Thank you. You did so well. That was so fun. Oh, cool. Yeah, awesome. I had a great time. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, so Invisible Boys is out 1st of October. I'd say go buy it. 
Um, go yes. to your local library. By 10. By 10, absolutely. <laughs> Still go to your local library and harass that school librarian to get it for you. <laughs> totally. That's great. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Holden. Holden. 